Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to be talking to a giant of rock and roll, Wayne Kramer, guitarist in the MC5, who wrote a memoir called The Hard Stuff, Dope Crime, The MC5 and My Life of Impossibilities. You know, talk about a rock and roll life. Started out in the MC5, a band that wanted to change the world and, you know, overthrow the establishment, but in the end became legends but couldn't quite even make a definitive studio album and yet inspired band after band, generation after generation of band. And afterwards, Wayne's life got pretty rough. He fell into addiction and he actually ended up in prison for several years where he uh, he joined the uh, prison newspaper and learned jazz, jamming with a jazz musician, older one who had been a lifelong heroin addict who was also in prison got out of prison, moved all over the country and continued uh, to fight an addiction and sometimes just indulged in addiction and made some great soul music as well. He has an album with the same title as his book, The Hard Stuff, which was on Epitaph and fell into the entire LA punk rock world there. And I think we actually have Wayne with us right now. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be on the show. Where where are you guys? We're in New York here at Sirius XM, and I was running through your life, actually. <laughs> I just told your entire life story, so we're good. But uh, congrats on the book, which is uh, intense and, and beautiful and really well done and harrowing <laughs> at times. I'm sure it was even more harrowing to live some of this stuff. Yeah, well, I'm happy you appreciate it. It was daunting in some some senses, you know, to actually committed all to paper and and um, try to get the sequence right and try to get, you know, what happened accurate and to kind of, you know, analyze myself and look inward and say, well, you know, how did I really feel about, you know, what was really going on with me at that point? It's been an illuminating experience. So you at first grew up actually on an island, not that far from Detroit. And then when your parents split up, you moved to the city proper. And your first encounters with rock and roll were songs like Rebel Rouser by Dwayne Eddy. And I think you said that hit you right in the groin. Yeah, th- there was a place where I used to stop and eat, a restaurant, the Jet Coney Island, and they had a Seaburg jukebox. And I think it had like a 15-inch speaker in it. So uh-huh. when those low guitar tones came out, you know, bam, boom, gong, 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 it was like, whoa, I can feel this music. You know? <laughs> it let's, was a physical thing. Let's actually hear Rebel Rouser by Dwayne Eddy for a second. Great. And then it was like Chuck Berry and Little Richard. You were feeling this music more intensely than anyone around you, and you started to have a, a real sense that music was kind of where you needed to go with your life. It kind of spoke to me in a secret, coded language that you know, no one else seemed to pick up on, but I was hearing loud and clear. And when you started to form what became the MC5 or, or the bands that led up to it, Detroit was a thriving city with a thriving music scene. It was before the events that would change the city in a huge way. And you guys were actually playing, you know, you played some dentist fraternity party. Uh, you played all sorts of gigs in this thriving, healthy city. But then it seems like everything really started to change 
when the riots came, or as you, you call them, the, the revolt. Tell me about driving through the city that day and, and being on the roof and seeing this happen and watching the city kind of be set ablaze. Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately it, it all exploded as most of America was that summer. And people just saying, listen, we've had enough of this and turning on their, their slumlords and the shopkeepers and even burning their own neighborhoods in just a rage that you could feel when you drove across the city. I mean, you could smell it. The, you know, the air was full of smoke and sirens and gunfire. It was kind of like uh, a, a World War II army movie, you know, where yeah. you, you're hearing all this in the background, except it was real. And, um, you know, these were streets that I grew up on and was raised and went to school and, and these neighborhoods I knew all my life. And now the entire order of daily life was turned upside down. Uh, it was thrilling and terrifying at the same time. And it does seem like those events helped change the MC5 into the MC5 that the world ended up knowing. Is that oversimplifying to an extent, or is there a real connection between the, the wildness of the sound that eventually emerged in those events? Uh, yeah, no, no, I think your, your, your analysis is not inaccurate. You know, having to face that kind of naked, aggressive power on the part of the police and of government agencies radicalizes one. Uh, it certainly polarizes the situation that was already volatile with the, the civil rights movement, with the anti-war in Vietnam movement, with oppressive 50s-era sexuality and anti-marijuana laws. Uh, young people uh, in general felt unified in resisting the efforts of the older generation. We, we thought they were messing it up, and it was our duty you know, as patriots to try and straighten this business out. And the, the MC5, you know, we kind of took it personally in, in as much as this was, this is my neighborhood. These are, you know, these are my neighbors. These are my friends. This is my family. And we're all, you know, on the receiving end of a blunt stick coming down on our heads. And, you know, the band had obviously started with a friendship between you and Fred Smith. And there was a real kind of um, the kind of rock and roll we were talking about, Chuck Berry and stuff. And yeah. it, how did it develop on a musical level to what we hear on Kick Out the Jams? What were the steps that led from the band that could play at, at house parties to this monumental thing you became? <laughs> Well, I'd say it took major turns at a, a few different points. You know, the decision to not be a cover band exclusively was a turning point for us. You know, we were encouraged to learn songs that were played on the radio so that we could get steady employment in bars. But we didn't want to do that. I wanted to write my own songs and play concerts like my idols you know, like The Who and The Rolling Stones. And then to um, the, the influence of the counterculture and um, marijuana and LSD was considerable and kind of opened my mind up to different ways of approaching music and then ultimately to be exposed to the free jazz movement, uh, you know, the music of John Coltrane and Sun Ra and Albert Eiler and then try to make a connection between what I was trying to do with the electric guitar coming from Chuck Berry to move forward to what Albert Eiler was doing with the saxophone seemed like the, the logical next step. So at each step of the way, our sound evolved and we escalated 
technically we we could play better we we had better equipment um and ultimately we put uh, all our energy into becoming the the most powerful live performing band the world had ever seen huh. at, at least that was our goal yeah know? i want you right now i think we'll play that if we can Yeah, man. That level of distortion, where else were you hearing it? I guess Hendrix, like what? where was that? Because I mean, it was still, obviously there's the punk element of it all, but also the heaviness was pretty fresh at that period of time. So where did the, the heavy come from? It just kind of evolved. Uh, we used to play Wild Thing and then Hendrix came out with his version of it. So we thought, well, let's move over and pick another one of their songs because we like the stuff they were doing. I think that that heaviness just grew out of trying to put more energy into the same three chords. You know, where do you go once you're playing everything as fast as you possibly can? And <laughs> we started to find that you could leave the beat and the key behind and go into a pure sonic dimension. And how did the idea to to make Kick Out of the Jams a live album, to kind of start out with a live album. How did that come about? Well, it, it was a, a consensus idea between the band and Sinclair and Elektra Records because all of our effort was put into performing live and we had very little studio experience at that point. We had just made a, a handful of 45 RPM singles where you go in and you cut the song in three hours and mix it and you're done. And I think the idea that, you know, getting this band in a studio to record an album could be costly and labor intensive. Uh, whereas we were fantastic live performing unit and if we could capture the excitement of the live concert event uh on record it could be a, a you know a revolutionary way to um introduce the band to the world and I, I think that worked pretty well and at this point we should probably explain the whole john sinclair thing who was john sinclair and how did he come into the orbit of mc5 sure john sinclair was a poet and still is a poet, the, the hardest working poet in show business, <laughs> and remains one of my best friends. I, I just spoke to him last week. Uh, he ran a, an operation with some other artists in Detroit called the Artist Workshop. And it was a, a loose collection of poets and jazz musicians and writers and filmmakers and graphic artists. They had a rehearsal space in the community, and, and uh, we lived in that neighborhood. We had all left home. I was 17 when I moved down there, and so I asked them if we could take advantage of the rehearsal space, and we developed a friendship, and we had great respect for John. He was a little older than us and certainly better educated and was able to articulate uh, in granular detail why things were the way they were in the world things that I knew on a gut level, he could explain in terms of, you know, this event influenced that event or this political crisis precipitated that decision. And we grew to um, have enough respect for him that we asked him to, to manage the band. Uh, and he agreed. And uh, 
He took over management of the MC5 and managed us up to the day he was sentenced to nine and a half to 10 years in prison for possession of two joints of marijuana. Yeah, one of the, the great, insanely unjust moments of the 60s. Now, he Well, had, yeah, had, just he, unbelievable. It, it culminated with John Lennon writing a song about him and ultimately the Michigan Supreme Court agreeing with our contention that uh, nine and a half to ten years for two joints was cruel and unusual punishment and a violation of the U.S. Constitution. Now, John had formed a sort of sister group to the to the Black Panthers called the White Panther, and uh, the official ethos was rock and roll, dope, and fucking in the streets was the platform. You guys consider yourself White Panthers as well, or were we kind of just, <laughs> how did you see that on a sort of membership basis? Um, absolutely. We were, we were founding members of the party. Uh, I was a minister of culture in the streets. Right. was my title. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, it was in the beginning, it, it was kind of a semi-serious way to express solidarity with the Black Panther Party and to express our frustration with the slow pace of change. You know, we, we saw the great injustices that uh, in the world around us and being young and being uh, extremely idealistic, we wanted to do something about it. We wanted to make a difference. And I, I think one person can make a difference. I think five people can make an incredible difference. I think a dozen people could do phenomenal things if they're organized and focused. Um, and so the White Panthers became a, uh, a delivery system to send a message to America that, to, you know, we, we, wanted, we wanted things to change. Even if you didn't know that about you guys, you could hear it in the music. So John Sinclair, he had that line about he wanted you to be bigger than Mao. You know, he, he didn't right. see you as just a rock and roll band. He really saw you as a force for revolution, which you did too. But at the same time, you wanted to be a great and big and, and successful rock and roll band. Is that fair to say as well? That is fair to say. One of the things that is really interesting in the book, and there's a lot of things we won't have time to get to at all. If you guys want to know it all, you're going to have to read the book. But I will say it's kind of a famous thing. It's when you were playing in New York and uh, the group known as the Motherfuckers felt that you guys were insufficiently revolutionary and really right. flipped out when Electra, your label, sent, <laughs> sent a limo to pick you up after the gig. And all hell broke loose, right? Yeah, it was... Uh it was quite a dramatic scene. I mean, you know, maybe they should have sent an armored personnel carrier to pick <laughs> us up or a tank or something. But uh, that the limo symbolized everything about the pig honky culture that uh, the motherfuckers and, and we all on the hard left oppose. You know, Electra just thought they were doing a nice thing by sending a car to pick us up from the gig. But as usual, the business interests were a step behind uh, what was happening in the street. And they ended up, you know, with a terrible confrontation with me out in the middle of the street at midnight trying to argue a political polemics uh, um, with, you know, a bunch of crazed speed freaks and junkies <laughs> and drunken, you know, street people. And, and uh, you know, I almost got killed. Uh, f finally, the... Uh, the leaders of the motherfuckers came in and uh, one of them came on the front of me and one came on the back and they literally carried me out of the crowd like a sandwich, protecting my body from the, uh, the crowd uh, and walked a few blocks away from the Fillmore uh, when I you know, was down on 2nd Avenue and 
6th Street, I think. Um, yeah, not, you know, now, now, there's a really, safe. now there's a really good barbecue restaurant right over there. <laughs> Things have changed. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but they have a little plaque for the film artists, they do. Uh, but this conflict between changing the world and just being a great rock and roll band kept manifesting itself. Before we move on to your second album, a couple things. It's quite an incredible piece of history. The, obviously, you guys played outside the 1968 Democratic Convention. What was that day like? It was not unlike a lot of days for the MC5 because we would play anywhere anyone would let us. And to play a, a free concert in a park for community groups was something we did uh, as a matter of course. Um, and so when uh, Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman invited us to Chicago to perform at the Festival of Life to oppose the Festival of Death, which is the way they saw the Democrats' convention, um, we jumped at the chance. Sure, they said all the California bands were coming and bands were coming from all over the world and it was going to be a big rock festival. And so we, we drove out there and, and uh, got there. There was no stage. There was no electricity. There was no <laughs> flatbed truck. There was nothing. <laughs> So we set up on the ground and we had to borrow electrical power from a hot dog stand to run our back line. And uh, we performed a set. And uh, the minute we finished, um, and I'd seen this before, when as long as the band is playing or the crowd has something positive to focus on, everything is fairly peaceful. But once you take that away, the mob mentality takes over. And of course, the Chicago police were provoking the kids by uh, really rough tactic, you know, beating kids and pushing kids around and riding their motorcycles through the crowd. And of course, you know, the kids responded in kind. And uh, we all we got in our van and headed back to Detroit where we'd be safe. And um, <laughs> then we all watched on television as what happened is the Chicago police went on a rampage and beat to young people indiscriminately in, on national television. And it was a it was a stirring moment in America. Yeah, yeah, and and like you said, it it does feel there's there's some resonances right now. We'll see just how much. But you are not necessarily a super fan of Kick Out the Jams. You are, however, playing what sounds like a, a really exciting tour starting in September, where you're going to be performing that album in its entirety with a sort of super group with people like uh, Soundgarden's Kim Thayil, and uh, so that's exciting. But when it comes to the album itself, I think you think that it was sort of not a great night for the band, right? You, you actually feel that we could have been documented on a, on a different, better night, and you, you would have preferred that? I, that is how I feel. I mean, you know, I want to be honest, and, uh, you know, I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, I, I abhor revisionism. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, I, my feeling at the time was, geez, this wasn't a really great gig for us. We should record it again. And uh, my vote was not enough to carry the day, and the consensus was that the record sounds great, we're going to go with it. Um, but yeah, I would have preferred to keep recording and getting a, a night where we played a little better. You know, the, the band was mercurial, and on a good night, we were unbelievable. Uh, but on a bad night, we could be kind of a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't think that was one of our, our better shows. Um, but you're right, you know, to go out today, 50 years later, and perform that album with uh, guys like Kim Thiel and Brendan Canty, the great Fugazi drummer, and 
Marcus Durant, uh, Zangorilla singer, and Billy Gould, the uh, bass player from Faith No More, to play with uh, musicians of this caliber who, believe me, they get it right every night. <laughs> they play the stuff real. They really take it seriously, and, and the, the music is just sounding incredible you know the mc5 actually never sounded this good <laughs> <laughs> but you know today listen we, we've all been playing for a long time now and you know I, I made that record i was 19 years old and and i was pretty crazy i mean i'm still fairly crazy but uh <clears throat> i've been around a little while and i i know how to play the guitar a bit and uh, so do my co-workers and uh the sound has really just been inspiring every night to go out and, and play these songs and see the reaction in a whole new generation of, of music fans that never heard this music before. It's, it's very it's very exciting for me. It, it's a, a gift that I never asked for um, and never expected, but I really appreciate. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. The fascinating thing to me is that uh, Michael Davis, the bass player in MC5, that he <laughs> he said that he essentially like was playing out of sheer intuition, like he might not know, wasn't really playing with chord progressions. It, it almost sounded like he almost wasn't a musician the way you describe it. That's not inaccurate, you know. <laughs> he I mean, he could play the acoustic guitar and him and I used to um, sing folk songs together and, you know, harmonize Beatles songs and Temptations harmony parts. And I loved to sing with him. And then when the, it looked like the bass player in, in the band was going to leave, I thought, well, let me just move Michael over into the band and I'll show him, you know, how to play the bass. And that was naive of me to think that anybody could be a great bass player or that I could create a great bass player because I can't do that. And, and we all play the instruments or do what we do based on something deep inside, a motivation that's internal. And Michael just kind of went from being a, you know, a art student to the bass player in the MC5 in one smooth lateral move. <laughs> and I thought it was a good thing for a long time because <clears throat> his approach was unencumbered by... Uh, convention <laughs> <laughs> so to speak yeah but yeah as, as time went on and and we had to learn how to work in a recording studio and you know we had to try to be consistent with our performances it turned out to be a little bit of a liability uh because um you know there were fundamental rules of the road that uh, michael hadn't mastered yet and uh, so you know it, it made the band a, a uniquely idiosyncratic Let's hear Come Together from Kick Out the Jams, if we can. Great. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Lester Banks pointed out, and as anyone with ears can point out, there it, it was a similarity to, I can see for Miles, by the Who, of course. Sure. But you know, if we, listen. We were influenced by the world we lived in. You know, yeah, we were we were very plugged into what was going on around us. So you made this album. You then wanted to make a real studio album. You ended up in the studio with John Landau, who later became manager and producer for Bruce Springsteen. And the album was back in the USA. And you know, there's actually great stuff from back in the USA. And there's moments of really great rock and roll. And the rap on it, at least in the U.S. 
the critical rap was that it kind of was too restrained. It went too far in the other direction, that it was too tight, too clean. I think you said this yourself in the book, and it just kind of missed the mark in that way. That said, if you listen to something like The Human Being Lawnmower, it still is pretty cool. I actually have a theory about Back in the USA, which is it starts out with your version of Tutti Frutti, which is pretty tame. And I think that maybe that helped poison people's ideas of the album. What do you think? I don't disagree with you. It's easy to 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 be Monday morning uh, quarterbacks, uh, you know. Forty years later, yeah. Forty years later, but yeah, I think we, you know, we were extremists, so we went from one extreme to the other. We we were extremely um, improvisational and and uh, and undisciplined to being extremely controlled and and uh, cl- kind of clamped down. What drove me was I wanted to answer our critics who said that we couldn't play and that, you know, we were kind of a fraud, you know, the, the revolutionary hype. And when I knew in my heart that this was a great rock and roll band and, and could have the potential to be the archetypal American hard rock group and really usher in a new era of hard American rock and roll that had a relevance that was you know, connected to the concerns of young people. And the irony um, is that the, the British punks, as much as that record kind of missed in America, it turned out all the future British punks absolutely loved back in the USA. So you, yeah, that, that was kind of the twist yeah. on that. But let's hear Human Being Lawnmower if we can, just to get a sense of that. Sure, sure, sure. So again, I think the the reputation for overly tamed could be exaggerated, especially if you pull out a track like that. But one of the things I thought was interesting is John Lando, after becoming so spectacularly successful, I think attracted a lot of resentment. And I think people always wanted to quote unquote blame him for the the cleanness of this album. I really got a sense from the from this book that that was as much your idea for the album as his. He wasn't trying to tame MC5. It was more of an internal idea. Yeah, I mean, and the truth is he could not have forced anyone to do anything. You know, we were so defiant and rebellious that, you know, had someone come in and tried to tell us how to do something, it just would have never worked. We we listened to, to John. John, you know, is a, a brilliant man and uh, has a clean and clear vision of how rock and roll works from the inside out. And you, we've seen it uh, expressed successfully in his work with Bruce Springsteen that, you know, they were able to identify core themes and, and core uh, musical ideas that built Bruce's career. And a lot of those, I think, were ideas that we pioneered in the MC5, but the MC5 was too unmanageable <laughs> to, uh, to, to execute with, you know. He, he tried to, uh, uh, yeah, I... I, I it, it, this was a this was a consensus effort, and in fact, um, you know, John Sinclair is the guy who recommended John Landau produce the album. Right. So, right. so you know, even though it did alienate some of our core constituency in the Detroit area, um, it it helped build our following internationally, and it it was a great uh, music lesson in how to work in the studio. So by the time we got to the third MC5 album, High Time, we knew how to work in the studio and we knew how to 
to uh, minimize our weaknesses and focus on our strengths and how to be creative uh, in the studio environment. And at the same time, your label, the music industry started to just turn its back on you in a really classic and awful case of once the industry shuts off that faucet of money and interest in you, you just hit a brick wall. And there's a moment when you go to Ahmed Erdogan and ask for more money and he <laughs> He's basically he he says we have an expression we're about good money after bad. Then he took a phone call and started talking in French and didn't turn the chair away from you. And that was pretty much it, right? That was it. Yeah, it was uh, the symbolism, the poetry of the moment was unmistakable. You know, like you know they didn't really have a grip on what to do with a white rock band like the MC5 to begin with. Um, they were you know an R and B specialty label. But they saw that there was going to be a lot of money in these rock and roll bands, these white guitar-driven bands. So, you know, they signed the, the most formidable of all of them, the MC5. Then they tried to figure out what to do with us. And, you know, we were uncontrollable. And, and we had no... Sinclair had gone to prison. We had tried to work with uh, establishment music business professionals. And, of course, that didn't work. This, uh, you know, this kind of hitting a brick wall at, at every turn uh, ultimately led to the, the band imploding. Uh, you got to remember that um, the MC5 <clears throat> never pulled the golden horseshoe out of our ass. You know, we never had a hit record. <laughs> Most of the bands that emerge <clears throat> and that sustain, they generally have hit records right out of the box. You know, the Who. Their first records were hits. The Rolling Stones' first records were hits. Uh, U2's first records were hits. R.E.M., you know, Rage Against the Machine. All these bands had hit records right out of the box. And that provides a cash flow that keeps bands afloat when times get tough. Right. And the MC5 never had that cash flow. And, you know, we've got mouths to feed and we're starting to, people are getting married and having children and, the center never holds and the way things were when we started the band in 1966 and 67 isn't the, where we were at in 1972. And uh, of course the, the music business, the record industry in particular at, in those days was growing exponentially every year with higher profits and more records being sold. All they cared about was uh, commercial success and the MC5 was just a load of problems for them between our problems with the police and the FBI and then problems in our own community with not being revolutionary enough for the revolution. I mean, these were ideas that were way too complex for record company guys to want to deal with. You know, so they, they signed a bunch of new bands that, you know, just wanted to be rock stars. And that was the smart move for them. Unfortunately, it, it uh, signaled the, the end of any... Uh, business support for the MC5. Before we move on from the early years real quick, we were talking about being uh, dropped from record labels and fighting with the business. I mean, an example of how the MC5 conducted themselves on a business level is when the department store Hudson's banned you guys. And you actually ran a ad in the underground magazine Fifth Estate and in the Ann Arbor Argus that said, kick out the jams, motherfucker, and kick in the door if the store won't sell you the album on Electra. Fuck Hudson's. And then Hudson's went on to ban everything on Electra. So that might help. Exp- <laughs> that, <laughs> we start to understand why the label might have had a problem with you guys, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, they didn't. They didn't see the, uh, the our thinking. They didn't follow our our logic and uh, <laughs> in the stance we were taking. That uh, you know, like if you if you let people run over you, then you know you kind of get what your hand calls for. <clears throat> they said we had complete control over our uh, marketing, and that's how we decided to respond to being banned. <laughs> Especially from a store that we had all shopped at all our lives, you know, that store was an institution in Detroit and <clears throat> for them to not carry our record because they thought that the, the content was obscene, you know, that's not their call to make. And in, in America, we have something called freedom of expression. And the label, in fact, told us they would back us right. uh, in a freedom of expression um, legal case if it came to that. But, you know, when it started to affect their bottom line, they changed their mind and, and fired us. <laughs> <laughs> now, things obviously, things got rough after the end of the band. I was thinking about this. I mean, there's a lot of musicians who cultivate an image of being out on the edge. And, I mean, you were far on the edge. You, you were seriously into crime and you got caught fairly red-handed. They actually came into your apartment and saw a bunch of stolen goods there and, and you went to prison. Uh, and it was, did, it was no yes. joke, no yes. joke. As a, as a, as a gangster, um, I make a great guitar player. <laughs> I'm, I'm a complete failure as a, as a, as a criminal. <clears throat> I had no idea what I was doing and, and, you know, like, but when I went to prison, they taught me, um, how to do crime. <laughs> I, I learned in prison how to deal drugs and, and how to do robberies and how to do a lot of stuff that's you know, extremely antisocial. Yeah. Negative. Yeah. And this prison's good for that. Prison <laughs> prison is crime school. <laughs> At the same time you, you learned a lot about jazz thanks to uh, an old jazz musician who'd spent a lot of time in prison because of unjustly, of course, because of of his, his opiate addiction. Yeah, Red Rodney was his name, and Red was from the the uh, Bebop era of jazz and he replaced Miles Davis in the Charlie Parker Quintet. And uh, he played uh, with a degree of accomplishment that is still unseen in trumpeters uh, today. I mean, he, he was a phenomenal uh, artist. Uh, when he played his horn, I didn't hear notes or chords or scales. I smelled fried chicken and, and you know, felt the rain on 52nd Street, you know. <laughs> I mean, his playing was so vivid and so alive and, and so deep that, uh, yeah, it, that was a unexpected gift to become his student and, uh, and to become his friend and uh, serve time with him and study music and play together in the prison band. Um, so I went in, you know, a fairly adventurous rock guitar player, and I think I came out of prison uh, a competent musician. And, you know, you spent time in the wilderness, you spent time dealing with addiction, but then in 1995, uh, you hooked up with Epitaph and released The Hard Stuff. It's, it's such a great album. You were just ready to make a great album at that point in time, and, and that, that must have been a, a good feeling when you came out with that, getting recognition from a new generation, I imagine. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we've all heard there are no second acts in America. But, you know, I've had a second act, a third act, a fourth act. Um, yeah, to, to have the backing of a great uh, company like Epitaph and Brett Gerwitz, 
and to be able to make uh, records for his company and go out and, and promote them and play music for people around the world was uh, was a great turn of events for me. And, you know, to finally figure out how to that there was a way to live without, you know, where drugs and alcohol were not necessary every day and that uh, that I could I could have a productive and uh, useful life and and then ultimately you know to found jail guitar doors and be able to go back to prison and uh help prisoners through the, the skills that I have in music uh and you know to have a, a beautiful I have a 5-year-old son that yeah. I am absolutely uh, in love with I adore him and and a wonderful wife who supports my efforts um I I've got very little to complain about uh, at this stage of the game I'm a fortunate man yeah, man. And that's another reason this is a satisfying book. So thanks so much for being with us. So that was Wayne Kramer, who has a new book called The Hard Stuff, Dope Crime, The MC5, and My Life of Impossibilities. And he also has a tour this fall where he's going to be playing Kick Out the Jams in its entirety. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. We are a podcast. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Maybe leave us a review on iTunes. And in the meantime, we'll be back next week. And as always, thanks for listening. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.